Do you love to question everything? Then Big Audacious Idea is the podcast for you. Each week, host Craig James meets with one of today's most provocative thinkers, and together, they examine the meta questions of life. Like, does time move backwards? Is there life after death? And is cryptocurrency just a trend? For more information about Big Audacious Idea and other shows by Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media, go to evergreenpodcasts.com. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast. Look, I don't even really want to do an intro. I want to get into this episode because here's what it is. This is, oh, this is tough after 300, but one of, easily one of my top five favorite episodes of all time. Today we're interviewing Zwei Kwok. Zwei is a refugee from Vietnam and a graduate of Harvard College and the Wharton MBA program. She overcame the long-term effects of poverty and trauma by turning to neuroscience and meditation. But since then, she's built a successful international business career in management consulting and private equity investments. That's not where it ends, though. The best part is she still felt a need for greater clarity. She had to calm the PTSD that enveloped her due to her incredible upbringing. And because of that, she traveled through Asia to study various contemplative traditions and created the Calm Clarity program. Calm Clarity is a pioneering social enterprise that uses science to help people master their minds and be their best selves. Her book is called Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain. It's brand new, and I have to tell you, it is incredible. In this episode, with the time given, I try to capture everything from the difficulties of her early life all the way through when it really hit her how much she had overcome and how far she had to go when she was at Harvard. I mean, at the age of two, Zwei and her family had to escape Vietnam. They packed onto a crowded boat and very soon the boat ran out of food. It was at that time that they came across a Malaysian Navy vessel, which they thought was going to save them. And instead, they were robbed and beaten. Eventually, her and her family made it to a refugee camp in Indonesia, which is where another battle truly started, with survival being just as difficult. The family eventually made it to the United States, but given their lack of roots and resources, they grew up in one of the poorest and most crime-ridden parts of Philadelphia, where murder, guns, and drugs were a part of daily life. Imagine coming from that and making it all the way to the number one university in the country and progressing through to an incredible career and finally to a mission to help lives around the world. I can't say enough. Let's get into our episode with Zay Kwok about calm clarity, how to use science to rewire your brain, and how to move from the anxious brain 1.0 to the thoughtful, creative, and amazing brain 3.0. We are at smartpeoplepodcast.com. If you love this episode, I'm going to ask you to leave a comment and a rating on iTunes. This is one I believe in, and I want as many people as possible to hear this message. Introducing 
Zwei Quack. Well, Zwei, thank you so much for being on Smart People Podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. And I have to say, in all honesty, 100% candor, like you are representative of why we started this show. And I mean that because my goal has always been to speak with people who are successful and smart, but starting from the inside, and then that leads to outward success. Because I think too much societal, you know, the societal norm today and what's going on in even podcasting is let's find all outwardly successful individuals. And I think that's less than half the story. For sure. I mean, I think there's so much that happens inside a person that built that foundation for not just chasing mirages of happiness outside. You know, life is is a constant state of FOMO if you don't mm-hmm. have if you're not grounded and anchored in something, right, you can always feel inadequate because there's 50,000 people doing cool things on social media and you're missing out, right? right. <laughs> and so it's important for all of us to establish a sense of, of being anchored and present in who we are and being confident about the gifts that we bring to the world so that we're not like a leaf being tossed around in the wind or a, a boat without a keel being, you know, uh, tossed about on the sea. Well, with that, maybe you can help with some of my FOMO then, because to be honest, I I read your bio and I'm like, I can never amount to anything close to this. And I I mean it in this sense, right? Like we're going to talk about the things you've dealt with in your life and the experiences you have, but then to come from that and succeed by all measures, right? Harvard, Wharton, this book, you know, your social enterprise, Calm Clarity, the Collective Success Network. I mean- So I have FOMO. So help me with this. How can I speak with somebody like you and be like, yes, but you're a unique snowflake yourself? Well, you know, it's it's ironic that I can have this effect on people because that's not my intention. Um, And of course, it's not my intention to create any distance between us either. Um, But I think what's important for people to realize is the importance of um, embracing who you are and being an expression of your highest self, right? Expressing your highest qualities and your willingness and courage to do that will ultimately lead you to accomplish things that, you know, really matter to you, not, not to the rest of the world necessarily, but to you. And I think my journey, you know, was about learning how to detach from, you know, all the carrots and sticks that society gives you and, and not just impulsively jump through every hoop that was given to me, but to learn to say no and say, you know, I'm not going to run that race or I'm not going to do that um, person's, you know, kick the bucket list. Right. Mm-hmm. I have to focus on what matters to me. Mm-hmm. And, and and even today, I keep running into, you know, classmates who have done extraordinary things. And I have to say, you know what, this is not about benchmarking. Right. Like I need to stay true to what gives me meaning and to build out the things that matter to me. Right. And everything you do gives you a platform, right, to build like a foundation that you build on for the other things that matter to you. And so, you know, it's it's all about recognizing that we're unique. We all have a different part to play in this giant orchestra called humanity. And I don't want to play your part and you don't need to play my part. Right. Because we already exist. And and I think the goal is to to be the best instrument you can be in this giant orchestra. 
And I think that's such a great way of putting it. One thing I struggle with is there's, you know, 6 billion people or 7 billion or whatever it is at this point. And so as much as I want to feel like I have meaning, feel like I can add in some small way on a logical level, I go, yeah, but you know, there's at least a hundred thousand people doing the same thing as me to some extent. Right. So how do we, in a world that is now more and more connected, so our tribe, instead of 100 people, is now 7 billion, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. How can we still find meaning or believe we have any in this madness? Well, so it's not that the world needs to be smaller, right? I mean, they say there's no, um, no, no sno- two snowflakes are the same. They're all somewhat unique, and there have been billions and trillions of snowflakes, right, just in the last couple of years. Right. And, and I think the important thing is for us to recognize that even though there are 7 billion people, like the, the, the challenge is how did 7 billion people connect with each other? And everyone resonates with something different, right? Everyone resonates with a different message. So I can say the same message to like a thousand people and they each come away with something different. Mm. You know what I mean? And so, though there are hundreds of podcasts out there, um, each person listens to a podcast and gets something different and is drawn to very different podcasts, right? So who's to say that, you know, everything has to conform, nothing has to conform, right? And even though there's a pressure to like grow and grow and build a large audience, um, sometimes it's not really meant to be this mega play, right? Like not all drugs have to be blockbusters. People are getting into personalized medicine, mm-hmm. right? And so I think with 7 billion people and everything becoming much more personalized, right? Um, there's a need for people who are able to share messages in compelling ways with various different audiences. Right. Look, we're going to spend a lot of this episode on how you built your internal success. And by that, I mean this, this calm clarity, your new book, the workshops you put on, but I do want to touch on what drove you to external success. The things that I mentioned that the Harvard, the Wharton, the management consulting, the private equity, what was it that allowed you or even guided you to those heights, given where you came from and the situations you started in, which we will also talk about. I mean, the the irony is that once you've been to these places, you realize that they're not the heights, (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah. Prestigious from the outside. But once you're in it, you're like, this is it. I Uh, busted my butt for this. uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You know, so it's a very different perspective. Yeah. Once you realize that a lot of the sugar coating and the marketing and the Kool-Aid doesn't really stand up. I totally get that. I actually saw the best sign the other day. It was... What do you have now that you said you always wanted? And I was like, oh, that's so good. I'm getting that and I'm framing it because once you're there, it is that this is it. But what at least drove you to those places, which at least from societal standards are difficult, right? Harvard Wharton to graduate with them or or from them to go into, you know, private equity and succeed in it, management consulting, et cetera. Write a book like this, by the way. I mean, these things are hard. Now, they might not be the pinnacle, but they're hard. So what motivates you to accomplish these external feats? Well, I mean, to, to 
start at the very beginning. Um, I mean, I overcame a lot of hardship early in life, even as a baby. And um, my parents said there were multiple times during our escape from Vietnam and time in the refugee camp in which I almost died, right? Um, so many like near death experiences as you know before I was two years old, and they always felt that I was like the miracle baby because you know they had they were afraid of losing me, and the fact that I pulled through was incredible. But on top of that, like I was developmentally challenged, so I didn't learn to sit on time. I kept slouching over. I didn't learn to crawl on time, walk um, on time. Um, I couldn't put shoes on my feet the right way. I was totally dyslexic. And I didn't learn to talk until I was like five, six years old. Um, and so, you know, my parents, when we settled in the U.S., didn't have the resources to help me. Like they were so busy trying to make ends meet and they were so like stressed about adjusting to this new life. And we were living in a very dangerous neighborhood. So they had to be street smart. And um, it wasn't easy to be you know, poor and be a refugee um, in a time when people didn't want refugees in their neighborhood either. And so, um, you know, it wasn't until I started kindergarten that, you know, the teacher was like, what's wrong with her? And she called home and thought, you know, recommended that I go to special ed and that I have to learn sign language because I wasn't talking. She assumed I was either deaf, dumb, mute, like she didn't understand. And then eventually, um, like I had gone to preschool and this preschool teacher wrote a letter to um, assure her that I was intelligent and I could hear instructions when I wasn't like super scared. Right. <laughs> right. And, um, and so the school decided to take a chance and give me English as a second language and speech therapy. And so finally, you know, people like I had the one-on-one attention cause my parents had multiple kids, um, with someone who, you know, helped me pronounce letters correctly. And I finally learned how to talk. Right. And then they taught me how to read. And with that, I was so hungry to understand the world um, that I had to read every book twice, right? Once just to get an idea of what's in it and a second time to make sure I understood it. And I was willing to do that with every book the school gave me and to go through their library and do it with every book I found interesting. So by third grade, I became academically gifted. So I went from the bottom of the class, someone they wanted to send out special ed, to the top of the class, right? Um... And my parents kept reminding me that they fled Vietnam because um, they didn't think we could have good educational opportunities, that we'd have much of a future there. And so I needed to do my best to make good on their sacrifices. So the only way I knew how to repay them was with A's. Right. <laughs> right. And um, and it it was a good escape for me because my home life was chaotic. Mm -hmm. My parents took over a takeout restaurant in this very violent inner city neighborhood. Gangs would come in and rob people. People used to threaten to kill us on a regular basis. People drove by and shot, you know, their guns into the store every once in a while. And I remember in middle school, someone had their number come up, you know, they were leaving the store and got shot in the head. Wow. Um, so, so those are things I had to deal with. And I made a promise to myself as a kid that I would find a way out of this, right? I wouldn't, I didn't want to stay in this broken um, system, the cycle of poverty. Like I needed to break out of this and find a way to help other people do the same. So that was just an intention I made at a young age that 
this can't be my life. I cannot mm-hmm. repeat my parents' life. And all my parents really wanted for me was to become a pharmacist. But I had spent my, my childhood looking up at the world through a takeout window. Right? Wow. No way I was going to trade up for a bigger window at a pharmacy. <laughs> yes, but you get to stand up higher than everyone in a pharmacy. <laughs> That's the thing. That's the Seinfeld skit. I know, but I was just like, I got to see the world. I yeah. can't do Right. I need a different life than my parents. And, you know, being gifted, you know, people were talking about which colleges they wanted to go to. And I asked my parents, I was like, can I leave home? Can I go away to one of these great colleges? And they said, absolutely. No, you're a girl. Girls like traditional Asian families, they need to stay home with their parents until they get married. Right. And I was like, what? What? (laughs) So unfair. Yeah. brother go away but you wouldn't let me go away and um and i was like there's got to be like what school would you let me go away to come on mm-hmm. they said well if you got into the number one school we'll let you go no way and so you know they set it up right and so i was like okay then you know i i know i have to get into harvard <laughs> like wow and so i was like well you know when you tell someone that you underestimate them that you don't believe they can make it some people like want to prove you wrong so I always wanted the, that type of person where I was like, okay, fine, let me give this a shot. Yeah. And, you know, there was no help from school to take the um, SATs or to prepare the applications or anything like that. But I taught myself how to do it. You know, I asked teachers for recommendation letters. I did the best that I could do um, without any programming support. And somehow in the fall of my senior year, you know, I got a letter that accepted me into Harvard, mm-hmm. right? And the entire family was shocked. No one knew what to do about it. And they tried to convince me to, to stay. Right? Wow. <laughs> there's no way I'm not going to Harvard now that I've gotten in. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, the financial aid package then wasn't nearly as generous as it is now. Because mm. people can go like debt free on all grants. But back then it wasn't like that. And, you know, I'd also gotten to UPenn and I had to, the chutzpah to like call up Harvard and said, Hey, I got a pretty similar financial aid package from Penn. Like I had the mayor's scholarship even. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents really want me to go to Penn instead of going to Harvard because I could stay home and help them out. If I go to Harvard, not only do they have to like cover the transportation costs, but I'm not going to be around to help my family and it's going to hurt them economically. Right. Right. And that convinced Harvard to give me several thousand more dollars. Wow. First, I, I think back to this this author we interviewed who wrote a book called Forged in Crisis. And it's so much about the things we experience. And everybody knows this. The hardships that we go through are oftentimes the things that make us stronger. I like that idea of forged in crisis. And you kind of skipped over a little bit uh, all the hardships you went through when you were young. I mean, yes, you said, you know, died a few times before the age of two. So we can imagine. And we could talk about this for hours, but I guess I have to just guide people to your book, Calm Clarity. And you talk about leaving Vietnam, the boat you were on being kind of captured and the horrible atrocities that were faced then and then almost capsizing and then making it to this refugee camp. I mean, it's a whole different level of struggle. And that was all before you got to Philly, where you were also dealing with life and death situations. I mean, do you ever think, and I'm sure you've been asked this, man, if I could have avoided those difficulties, I would, or is it very clearly no, I would have gone through that because there's no way I would have gotten here without it? Well, I have to share that before I did feel that way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because like part of what I shared in terms of when I got to Harvard and I had 
I developed PTSD mm-hmm. was because I was angry and jealous, right? Um, when I was in the inner city, I was equal. I was on the same level with everybody in terms of violence and poverty and not having enough resources, right? And having parents who were undereducated who were unable to support me. All my friends were in pretty similar situations. And um, when I got to Harvard and I realized like, like people were going on summer vacations in Europe and special like prestigious camps during the summer and like all the resources they had. And I was like, what? Like I'm going to, I'm in the same class with people whose parents are governors, senators, vice presidents of the United States, like, yeah, you know, CEOs of companies, diplomats, ambassadors, like, like all these prestigious names. And, and I have to keep up with them. Yeah. And I have to compete with them for jobs. I mean, like, right. how does this figure? Right. And then people had so much spending money that after a while, I couldn't even afford to socialize with people. I just couldn't go out to dinners and hang out with them. Sure. And, you know, over time, like, I just, when I realized how poor I was and how under-resourced I was compared to my classmates, like, I was angry. I was resentful. I thought the world was unfair when I saw how privileged and sheltered they were and that they didn't have guns held up, you know, against their families. Sure. There was all this madness in my life and chaos and the fact that I was the responsible one in my family, right? I felt so much guilt when I went away to college Uh because I who was there helping my parents, right? And I started having nightmares that every phone call was someone calling me to let me know someone got shot or like hurt or whatever. Like I had um, all these PTSD symptoms show up. I couldn't sleep. Um, I had massive anxiety about everything. I felt like I didn't belong at Harvard. And the more and more the mental illness developed, the more I withdrew because I didn't want people to find out because it was so stigmatized at that time. And, you know, it took me a long time to see that, you know, I was creating these negative spirals by being jealous, by being angry, by being resentful, you know, by mm-hmm. carrying a grudge and a big chip on my shoulder. And, you know, things had to hit rock bottom in the sense that I lost my capacity to pull myself out of bed and go to class. Right. Right. I lost my interest in even living anymore mm-hmm. during that time. Mm-hmm. And before I was self-destructive, I decided to go and get help. And it wasn't until um, the, the psychiatrist asked me to go through my life story that I realized, like he explained to me, that all that trauma I had experienced before I was two years old had impacted my brain and could be the reason why I was having these crazy symptoms, right? And that, uh, like, I was putting myself down for being weak. But, you know, this new version of story was that I was extraordinarily resilient to even be capable of getting into Harvard. Right. That's one of the things that struck me in your book is you you talk about it almost seems like Harvard was the hardest experience for you. It was when you're placed into this beautiful fishbowl. It's almost like you finally saw what water was right to the example of being a fish in a fishbowl. And you said, wait a second, I've been living one way my entire life and this is what's out there. And that is when that's the straw that broke the camel's back. Is that how it went? Well, I mean, I think it was a combination of factors. Like, you know, when you come of age, you know, when you become a young adult, you just start seeing the world a very different way. And you start to look for your place in the world in a sense of identity. Um, I was tribeless. I mean, there's a word people have said um, about first generation college students. They become psychologically homeless 
because they no longer belong to the community they came from. Mm. Their identity doesn't like um, allow them to fit in there anymore, right? But they also don't really fit into the college environment, and so they don't know what's um, what to belong to, right? And right. and I think that happened to me. Like I would go home, and my parents would be anxious that I was ashamed of them, and they would say all sorts of terrible things. And um, I would be accused of being uppity and all, you know, and yeah. I was like, like, I, I, people don't see me as being part of this community anymore. And at the same time, you know, at Harvard, you know, I had like a really good, like my best friend, um, her mom told her to stop hanging out with me because I was low class. All of this is so eye opening. One thing I want to say, and because many of the listeners know that I have suffered from anxiety uh, the formal kind, right? Not just the kind of like, oh, I'm anxious, like tough to walk into a new place, right? Panic attacks, which put me in the ER and, and changed my, my life path. And I always had a little bit of, of guilt around this and weakness because I actually had a pretty idyllic everything, white, male, fairly affluent, educated, all that stuff. So I always felt like I didn't deserve to have these emotions. And so I say this because if somebody else out there is saying, wow, you know, I'm struggling with something, but I, I wasn't a refugee. I didn't have all these issues. This guest one time told me everybody's trauma is their own and none are greater than the other. It's because it's an experience. It's how you're experiencing it. It's not simply what is happening to you from the outside. Have you ever thought about that, given how intense your trauma truly was, being able to even recognize that other people might not go through similar things but feel similar emotions? Sure. I mean, I talk about that in the book, too, the difference between big trauma and little trauma, like big T trauma and little T trauma, right? Like people consider big T trauma as like life and death situations, right, where you're really in danger, but most of, you know, the time we experience little T trauma were these moments where we don't feel safe, but we're not really in danger. Like someone says something to us of some form of rejection, or we feel like we're in a hostile environment or that we really messed up, you know? And um, I think the important thing to, is to recognize that the nervous system doesn't actually know the difference between big T trauma and little T trauma that accumulates over time. Mm. Right. And, um, I think like I share my story in order to walk through, uh, my framework for the emotional states of the brain and for people to realize that these states are actually universal and it doesn't only apply to people who've had big T trauma, but however, um, when you've had big T trauma, it can be much harder to regulate your emotional state, mm. you know? And so, um, you know, for me, when I was at Harvard, I realized like it was like I had three different parts of me that, you know, were very unstable. Right. When there was a carrot dangled in front of me, like, you know, a prize or something, I would get as uh, competitive and type A as the next Harvard person. Right. Um, and so it was like this inner team wolf came out that just wanted to be the best and to have status. But going from, you know, Philadelphia to Harvard, where everyone was number one, I couldn't be number one anymore, you know? Right, right. And so, so it was a much harder place to have that feeling of triumph, of mm -hmm. have, being like number one, right? It was impossible. And so a lot of people then 
went into brain 1.0, um, what I call inner Godzilla mode, where, you know, you feel like, you know, you're not worthy. Um, you start withdrawing or you enter this freeze fight flight state where you become angry or you become like Godzilla. You just want to smash things or disappear. Right. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. And so I was like sort of a roller coaster between these two things. If on good days I got some sort of recognition or prize or a fellowship or grant, you know, I was on top of the world. And then something else I wanted didn't come through. And it was like this all or nothing tunnel vision. And I would just collapse into despair that I sucked. <laughs> right, right. That everything sucked and nothing would ever work out. And, and I watched, you know, me going back and forth and I was like, the problem was my needing to have that carrot in the first place. Cause once I got used to not having it, I realized life was still going to be okay. Right. And so this thing in our brain, I call brain 2.0, the reward system, right? Like we've been conditioned our entire lives, at least in this society to chase carrots and jump through hoops to claim our value in the world right? The more you achieve, the more people respect you. And so all of us have this really strong brain 2.0, this inner team wolf. Um, but that part of the brain, that dopamine system doesn't ever lead to real happiness. It's, it's an hedonic treadmill. Because as soon as you get the carrot, you get desensitized to it. And then you need to chase something else. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's called the pursuit of happiness. Right. It's not the of happiness, yeah. right? It's just constant chase and chase and chase. Um, and there's no contentment or satisfaction from that. And so as I was hoarding all these carrots, I wasn't becoming any less miserable as a person, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what's up with this story? Like, I thought if I got to Harvard, I would be happy. But I am the mo as miserable as I've ever been. I am worse than I've ever been. Why can't I be happy at this place? Because then the stakes got higher and the carrots got bigger. Right. And my confidence in being able to get the next carrot had diminished greatly because it was a much more competitive pull. Right. Mm. And so I was like, the only way to like get myself out of this maze I had built for myself is to stop chasing the carrots that my classmates are chasing because I'm not set up to win them. And the, the, the stress I put myself under in chasing them is like causing me to collapse into inner Godzilla mode and wanting to self-destruct. What's also fascinating is you still have gone on. I mean, let's not just stop your journey at Harvard, right? Because, of course, there's Wharton, but then there is your professional career, management, consulting, private equity. You're now the CEO and founder of Collective Success Network, which we'll talk about the nonprofit that really deals with that issue you were talking about of going to college and being alone. Calm Clarity, this this book, the workshops you, you teach. I mean, you know, you have still accomplished those or, or reached so many of those carrots. My guess is the motivation is different, though. What still motivates you to somehow work this hard? I have no idea how you do it, and I, I'm really curious in how it happens. Uh, but what's the motivation now? Is it different from the carrot mentality? So, so now we need to, need to talk about Brain 3.0. So brain 3.0 is kind of the higher brain, you know, it's your prefrontal cortex. There's these circuits in brain 3.0 that let you calm brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 and to see a much bigger picture and to build a life that's aligned with your core values. It allows you to imagine things, to daydream of a better future, right, to connect with some higher purpose. And so when I was, um, you know, 
like down in the rut in, at Harvard, you could say when I was at rock bottom, you know, I had to ask myself, what do I want to live for? Because I'm so ready to not live anymore. So what is worth living for? And I had this conversation with myself. I said, well, I could try to make the world a better place. I could stand up for, you know, kids going through similar experiences that I've had, right? I could try to pay it forward and help. You know, people don't have to be a rock star or superstar or get to Harvard to be happy. In fact, that's almost a recipe for unhappiness, given most of how my Harvard um, peers are doing these days. They're successful, but I don't think they're happy, right? <laughs> um, and... And I thought to myself, and I said, you know, I need to live a life that matters. I need to define what carrots matter to me, right? Because it's not that I'm going to stop chasing everything, right? Sure. But I need to be selective about what carrots really mean something and only use my energy. Because I didn't have a lot of energy. When you're super depressed and anxious, you just don't have a lot of energy. So I can only pick two or three things that really matter and go after them. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I did manage to graduate. And, you know, but at that point, I gave up doing a senior thesis, because I was like, that really doesn't matter in the big scheme of things. What really matters is me putting my brain back together. Yeah. So I spent all that extra time reading about the brain, you know, mm -hmm. and like, teaching myself mind hacking techniques and trying to reverse the impact of PTSD on my brain and understanding what makes an anxious brain different. Because there are pretty um, substantial difference between people who have anxious brains and normal brains, right? Like right. our brain 1.0 is way more sensitive. We tend to have a much easier time imagining terrible situations, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of effort to imagine like a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. right? So I'm an expert catastrophizer. Sure, me too. I'm right there with you. Wouldn't you say that most people are just based on our evolutionary you know, needs? There are some people who um, seem to have a hard time planning for the downside. Interesting. <laughs> there are some people, not many, but there are some people who just, you know, always see the upside and don't actually see the downside. Yeah. But many of us are defensive pessimists where we see what can go wrong and we do our best to prevent it. Right. A lot of type A people tend to be defensive pessimists. Mm -hmm. So we get into this need to control things. Um but someone whose brain 1.0 is super sensitive, right, can be triggered by anything, mm. right, and is hyper aware of everything that can go wrong. Um, and so that's what, what I was. And it took me a while to just accept it that I've made peace with the fact that anxiety will never go away in my life. Mm -hmm. But it's up to me to prevent the anxiety from becoming panic attacks. Mm. By Like what I write about is how I realized you know, I had a really strong right prefrontal cortex, which lets you see the downside, and it's very connected to the, the amygdala. But the left prefrontal cortex, which is associated with positive feelings and being able to visualize the upside, like positive futures, um, and allows you to calm the amygdala, um, that was under-activated in me. It just wasn't strong because I didn't use it very much. And so I made a concerted effort to always imagine to take time to be like, okay, I know what the horrible thing could be, the worst case scenario, but let's think about what could, positive things could happen, right. right? Let's not only imagine the darkness, let's also imagine the lightness. And by taking time to do that and to like watch comedies and feel good movies and things like that, 
you know, I eventually strengthened my left prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. So even now, the right one is so much stronger in terms of being able to see all the negatives first. Mm-hmm. The left side isn't that bad anymore, right. you know. And so I, I no longer have um, like suicidal tendencies mm-hmm. because I can also see all the things that are worth living for. One of the primary things, though, is this idea. I know you mentioned it in your book when you first decided to go seek help at, at Harvard. You went to a psychiatrist or a therapist and they kind of said, look, this might be something you deal with forever because of the way your brain was formed when you were young. And then what I find so impactful is that, as you mentioned, anxiety will always be part of you, but it's not going to run you, not going to turn you into panic. Do you feel that some people are unfortunately told that they can't change something due to their earlier circumstances? And, and what I mean by that is, do you feel that everyone has the power to change our mental state in a way that can be not just positive, but productive and, and, and happy and all the things that we want? Yes, uh, because of this property called neuroplasticity, the brain is constantly changing in response to your life experiences, whether you do it consciously or unconsciously, your brain is still changing. So the neurons that you fire the most just get stronger and stronger the neurons that you don't use they start pruning themselves so like it's been years since i've used calculus or even algebra and it takes a long time for me to look at math problems these days right (laughs) um and and any foreign language i studied which i stopped using like it kind of goes away um and even when i lived in asia for seven years like i had a hard time putting english sentences together Mm. (laughs) you know there were words that disappeared from my vocabulary um but, you know, if you make a conscious effort to develop and grow Brain 3.0, right, you can shift your entire emotional state. And it's not going to happen overnight when you're past a certain age. It gets, it becomes a much slower process because your default neural circuits, you know, the ones that you've strengthened your entire life, you know, are not going to like weaken overnight. You're going to keep going back to them naturally. But you have to make a conscious choice to keep using the other neural circuits that you're trying to grow stronger. So if you're someone who normally uses brain 1.0 a lot, it's still going to be your instinctive go-to and it takes effort to bring yourself into brain 3.0. And you know, the the 1.0, 2.0, 3.0 is such a great way of looking at it. You do a fantastic job in your book of explaining it in detail so much so that I saw my brain, I saw the parts of it in which I am operating in I want to ask you something, actually, one of my best friends who listens to this podcast a lot, a lot called me after a recent episode and said, do you think that mental disorders, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, do you think they are actual diseases? And I said, yeah, because I've felt what it's like to have some of these. And he said, well, then if they're diseases, do you think those can be cured through thoughts and action alone, whereas something like cancer can't? And we had a really long, healthy debate. The reason I bring this up is how do you feel on this stance of mental illness, mental disease being something that is of no fault of our own if we technically also have the ability to just think our way out of it? It's not that simple. You don't just think your way out of brain 1.0 and brain 2.0 and go into brain 3.0, right? I say... I mean, it's like working out every day. It's like lifestyle changes. You have to look at all your self-limiting patterns that bring you into bring 1.0 and bring 2.0 and slowly change them. Like that transformation process could take years to go through, right? 
Um, so it's almost like trying to cure, like, say you have high blood pressure, high cholesterol, right? You could take drugs to um, bring your blood pressure down to lower your cholesterol level, or you could change your lifestyle. You can change your eating behavior. You could exercise more. You could be careful about alcohol intake, and and you can change like your emotional patterns of getting angry, right? Mm-hmm. But that takes a long time to change. Well, that's actually changing your brain too. Mm-hmm. You know, so so it's not that simple. Like people say, let me think my way through it. I'm right. like, you know, you kind of have to exercise brain three point on a regular basis, like. Like we in the book, we have a daily routine. You know, we give a number of exercises. Those aren't the only exercises that can grow brain 3.0. Everyone has a unique brain, and the things that give you joy and and inspire you, you know, could be different for each person. But the key is to regularly activate those neural circuits, right, until they get so strong that you can find yourself、um, more easily. When you're in brain 1.0, brain 2.0, sh- to shift into brain 3.0, right?、Yeah. But until you exercise those circuits, it's. I talk about the difference between like lower body strength and upper body strength. Your legs, assuming you're healthy, have no problem carrying your body weight. You can run, you can go upstairs, you can climb ladders. It's pretty easy.、Um, but your、um, your arms, right? Those of us who don't work out, who are not athletes, how many pull-ups can we do? Right. How many push-ups do, right? And and can we carry heavy objects without like these days like messing up our backs? Right. You know? Right. Like until you work out like your entire body and your upper body strength, right? Until you develop it, you kind of can't do you know twenty pull-ups. You couldn't do the American Ninja Warrior race, right?、Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think some people have this very strange idea that. You know, we all know you can't go from completely unfit to running the Boston Marathon, right? Or doing a decathlon or the American Ninja thing that you have to train your body. But people underestimate the degree to which you also need to train your mind. Yes, and that's I think finally getting coverage with all the apps, you know, Headspace and Calm and all that. It's so funny when you said the thing you can't think your way out of it. I just had a flashback to when I finally found out after six months that it was a panic attack that put me in the ER. You know what my solution was? I remember I went to work, and and it was like my first return to work, and I just was telling myself, just don't care about anything, and you won't have a panic attack. It's that simple. I mean, it's so dumb. That lasted like thirty minutes, but it is so much more complicated, and that is what the action items covered in your book. What are some, as you call them, mind hacks, or what do you see is really impacting people? As you teach these things to bring them out of brain 1.0, which, in all honesty, is is one that I tend to favor and struggle against, and I know many people do. It's that seeing the downside, the fear, etc. So, how do we progress out of there? Sure. So, what I tell people is that it's about the autonomic nervous system. So, you have a set point in which your autonomic nervous system kind of stays in sympathetic mode. There's this hypervigilance that any little thing could trigger you into freeze, fight, and flight mode, right? And you have to learn the biofeedback signals in which that's happened, and to try to restore your autonomic nervous system into a more balanced state by activating the parasympathetic side, the rest and digest system, right? And so there are a few easy ways of of activating the parasympathetic nervous system. One is through deep breathing. 
So I go through like um, a, a, a breathing cycle that I like is 6363 breathing, where you inhale slowly for a count of six seconds, you hold for three seconds, you exhale slowly for a count of six seconds, and then you hold for three seconds. And you do that at least three times for up to like, you know, three, four minutes or so. And you'll start to see that your, um, your, your heart rate will calm down and your body will um, start to send more blood flow to your prefrontal cortex to bring 3.0, right? And that's important because this is why you can't think your way out. When you're in brain 1.0 and that whole cascade has started, there's not enough blood flow going to bring 3.0 that lets you think your way out of it, right? You actually need to try to calm your entire nervous system so you can restore the blood flow to bring 3.0. And another thing that helps is what we call the compassion meditation because it also activates like your vagus nerve which connects your heart to your brain and releases like oxytocin which helps to um, buffer cor- like the glucocortisol I can't say that word correctly I can yeah. read it yeah I know <laughs> cortisol and other stress hormones mm-hmm. right and reduces inflammation in your body and helps to you know heal your cardiovascular system mm. they call that the cuddle hormone it makes you want to bond and connect with people. Um, but simply by saying things like, may I be happy? May I be healthy? May I be safe? May I be peaceful? May I be prosperous? May I live in harmony? Um, and this is available on the Calm Clarity website under resources. We have a number of our meditations available for people to try. So you begin with yourself and you say that to people you know, people you're meeting with, um, strangers that you don't know you can say that to people you find difficult you can say that to the entire world but what it helps you do is to build oxytocin levels and to fire and wire your associations with people differently because once you have a sense of compassion towards people it's hard to be afraid of them or to hate them or resent them Mm. because you start to see like for me i've done this compassion meditation now since 2012 right Mm -hmm. and so it's become easier and easier to see people as their inner child, this wounded figure inside them, which didn't get enough love, mm. right? Which went through a lot of pain and agony. And every behavior they're doing now to act out is really a self-defense mechanism, right? To protect that inner child. And when you get yourself into this compassionate mode through this meditation, like people open up to me. Because they know I need them no harm. Like they can physiologically intuit that I'm a safe person to connect with. Sure. And that I genuinely care about them in an unconditional way without any agenda. Right? Mm. Um, and, and that relaxes people. And so and it relaxes me, of course. Right. Too. right. So, and what's happening in us is that these emotional states are contagious. Right? And so when someone's in brain 1.0, they can hijack everyone around them into brain 1.0. Mm-hmm. When someone's in brain 2.0, like, have you ever met a super competitive person and all of a sudden you want to kick their ass? Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's contagious. Yeah. But when someone's in brain 3.0, like, think of Gandhi, think of Mandela, think of Martin Luther King, right? They inspire, like, thousands of people to stand up and fight for something bigger than themselves, Right. But not in a violent way, in this loving and compassionate way to say, you know, we're all connected. It's humanity. You know, we're one family and we need to treat each other with dignity and respect. And, you know, this idea of oppression, this idea of entrenched racism is against how we're wired, how we're built biologically. We're all equal. We're all brothers and sisters. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, 
that's contagious. And so when you meet people and bring 3.0, like the Dalai Lama, every time he wants to speak, it completely sells out, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and people like Pema Chodron and others, like Oprah Winfrey, like people flock to them because they want, they're hungry for that. They want that inspiration. People want Bring 3.0. And I think if we have that confidence to build Bring 3.0 in ourselves and we see the effect it has on the people around us, and I mean, and this is very important for parents because the easiest thing to do as a parent is to bribe your kid and bring 2.0 to do what you want them to do. Right. Right, or to control them or use fear, you know. But the harder thing to do is try to be in Brain 3.0 and inspire the kids to do what's right. Mm. To find out the best in themselves so that they intrinsically can use their inner wisdom to make um, wise decisions. Oh, well, you just, you just gave me so much more to do. I mean, my three-year-old, I'm having a tough enough time getting him to eat vegetables. I don't know how to get him to access 3.0. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, when you're in Brain 3.0, yeah. you the kid. Right. Exactly. It's funny you say that, man. All this is like last night, something happened where I just, I was getting angry and I said, okay, I'm going to get down on his level, literally like get down on my knees and just talk to him about it. And in half a second, his entire demeanor changed and you just feel it. I mean, I do believe that what you're saying, that energy is transferable. And one day it's going to be as obvious as what a radio wave is today. And so Zway, I just, I can't say it enough how much I appreciate it. Um, we will be asking you to come back on the show. I, I know you're busy, so we'll wait a little while, but there's so much more to cover. Um, the book is Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain. I also wanted to just back up a minute and make sure we cover the Collective Success Network because this really is something you have built to deal with that issue of when first-generation immigrants go away to college. Would you tell us a little bit more about that project of yours and that organization? Sure. It's actually bigger than that. Um, first-generation college students apply to anyone whose parents didn't graduate from college. Ah, okay. We have, we serve Caucasian students, African-American students, Latino students. So it's, it's not based on immigration history at all. And um, I think what's really powerful, right, is the fact that so many people have been first-generation college students who've kind of learned the hard way on their own and are now pretty successful professionals who are interested in paying it forward but don't really know how to do that, right? And so um, what this network is doing is just rallying professionals across the business world to say, hey, there's no reason why students have to keep reinventing the wheel, Right. Like when we went to college, there were thousands of people who have done this before us, but we didn't get to learn from them. Mm -hmm. We had to keep doing it on our own. Like, what, what's up with that? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, that's just so, so, such a waste of energy. You know, if only there was a way to pull people together to carry that knowledge forward and, and pay it forward, right? And so, you know, with Calm Clarity, we have these social impact initiatives to um, provide this like top-notch, world-class mindful leadership training to people from disadvantaged backgrounds. And one of the core audiences is first-gen college students. And so I built up this network of students who really wanted to make a difference. And so they became like student leaders and they um, helped me to like design the Collective Success Network's programming to really meet their needs, to be current with what students are facing today. And then through the work I did you know, with companies and professionals with the training side of Calm Clarity, there were so many people who said, you know, I want to help you do more than 
you know, what we're doing now. Like we want to pay it forward too. And so it was just kind of, it was a natural bridging, right? Cause I was seeing both sides of it. And so what we're trying to do is rally students across different colleges to mobilize and create campus chapters. So we now have students at the University of Pennsylvania, Temple and Drexel, who've already established student organizations that service our campus chapters. And then we kind of coordinate with the business world, the wider business community, to rally professionals to volunteer, to serve as mentors, to give career advice, to speak on panels, um, to host and sponsor events and workshops. And we work with companies to sponsor these because a lot of companies say like diversity and inclusion is kind of broken, right? It's not that effective. What are more innovative things they can do to build a diverse um, um, workforce? And yeah. we talk about socioeconomic diversity and inclusion, that it's not just the color of your skin, but like, are, are you actually doing enough to hire people who come from disadvantaged communities? Because only then can you alleviate poverty, mm. right? Because people come up. And then they go back and help their, their, their family, their brothers, sisters, cousins, their neighbors, you know, these ripple effects are powerful, right? And so this is really a much more effective means to change the world, right? To actually invest in a socioeconomically diverse talent pipeline and first-gen college students and professionals are enormously gritty and resilient, yeah. right? Or much more loyal even, right? Um, and so there's a lot of traits and gifts and skills that we bring to the table and, and people who come from these backgrounds are even more courageous because we've been through life and death situations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're not easily bothered by the small stuff right? because like, I'm like, like I can be mad at that person, but seriously, no one held a gun to my head. So I feel pretty good. Right. <laughs> that is, that's such a different perspective though. And it's a needed one. This is why, again, I want to say thank you so much for being on the show. I also want to say, you know, keep operating out of Brain 3.0 because thus far, so many amazing things have come from it. And uh, I'm thankful for your time. I'm thankful for your journey and your willingness to share it and uh, excited to share it with our audience. And is there anywhere else, any other kind of websites or places where people can just learn about you, check in on what you're doing? I mean, it's, it's so fascinating. I think it'd be useful. Sure. I invite everyone to go to the Calm Clarity website. That's calmclarity.org. And um, under Transform, there's a, a tab for resources where the meditations are, where there are more articles um, that I've written or that are about me or relevant articles, you know, about mind hacking. And um, also, you know, we recommend books in case people want to go deeper um, beyond just a Calm Clarity book. And then anyone who's curious about the Collective Success Network or wants to get involved, that's collectivesuccess.org. So there, there, we've you know got social media pages and stuff like that. So you can find all that through the websites as well. Fantastic. Well, again, Zwei, thank you so much for your time. Sure, it was a pleasure. And I really enjoyed talking with you. This was a really deep conversation. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Zwei Kwok. Zwei's book, Calm Clarity, How to Use Science to Rewire Your Brain for Greater Wisdom, Fulfillment, and Joy can be found on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And as always, if you decide to purchase through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes at no extra cost to you, and it greatly helps support the show. 
If you're looking for a free and easy way to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're interested in signing up for the newsletter or looking at all of the old episodes that we have, you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. All right, that's it for us this week. Of course, we've got great interviews coming up, so we will see you all next. Wait a second. Actually, we will see you after I get back from my honeymoon.